following program is an interview and discussion whose sole purpose was to better understand from a cultural perspective an unprecedented and what may prove to be historic situation as it was unfolding. Neither the producer, nor the host, nor the guest are financial services professionals. Nothing in this episode should be interpreted as investment advice. No investment decision should be made from listening to the content of this program. Listeners should always practice their own careful due diligence before making any investment decision. You're listening to Interview Time. On December 30th, 2020, the stock price of fading video game retailer GameStop was valued at $18.84 a share. By January 28th, 2021, fueled by amateur investors leveraging social media and commission-free trades via the addictive game-like investment app Robinhood, the stock price had risen 1,700% to an all-time high of $483 a share, briefly making the company, once popular with millennials for selling used video game cartridges and shopping malls more valuable than Delta Airlines, and leveling tens of billions of dollars of losses to several high-profile Wall Street hedge funds. My guest, Justin Horn, an academic philosopher, became an early investor in GameStop after following the compelling research posted on a body retail investment subreddit called Wall Street Bets by a user named Deep Fucking Value, who had bet his entire $53,000 life savings that the hedge funds had exposed themselves to a short squeeze by short selling roughly 140% of its shares. In this episode, Horn and I examine the underlying thesis of the GameStop trade, discuss its narrative, political, and historical dimensions, and explore the potentially fatal consequences of our society's relationship with risk. Justin Horn, welcome to Interview Time. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. GameStop closed out the week with a valuation of $67.60 per share, and this is down... Uh, from an all-time high last week of approximately $483 per share. Uh, that is quite a drop from last week. Are you still holding on to your stock in GameStop uh, I, right now? I still have a position in GameStop, yeah. And I, Although I'd like to point out that uh, even uh, down to, what, what, what did it close at, $60? $67.60. $67.60 is still... Uh, you know, up almost $30 from its previous all-time high of around $38 uh, prior to the, uh, you know, GameStop short squeeze madness that's been going on right. uh, over the past, you know, a few weeks. Why are you continuing to hold? Well, uh, and again, I... I just want to emphasize that, that in our conversation here, I'm not encouraging anybody to take any particular position sure. on anything. Uh, but uh, I continue to hold because I continue to uh, be confident in the original due diligence research, uh, which I first encountered on the Wall Street Bets subreddit. Uh, months ago. What is the essential thesis behind the GameStop trade strategy? I, I think it really, it breaks down into two different 
there are two different theses in play with regard to GameStop. And both of these have been the subject of numerous posts on Wall Street Bets for months. Uh, one thesis is about the number of short positions taken on this stock and the fact that, you know, at, for months, it's been like the most heavily shorted stock in the stock market. And as has been widely reported, it, at some recent point had 140% of the shares in the float sold short, which is, that seems like a lot. It, it is a lot <laughs> by any, by any historical measure. That's, that's a lot of that's a lot of shares shorted. Maybe you could step in and just explain briefly for my audience what a short sell is and how it works. If when you're talking about long and short, and again, none of this is financial advice. I'm not a financial expert. I'm an academic philosopher. <laughs> I teach critical thinking and I invest some of my money in the stock market and I happen to be fortunate enough to uh, have my eyes on this community and, and be in position to be a part of this thing from, you know, not the very beginning, but certainly before all of the fireworks right. uh, that we've seen over the past few weeks. So if you have a long position in a stock, that means you think that the stock is going to rise in value over time. And what you do is you buy shares of the stock at a, at a lower price now expecting that they will go up in the future and you will sell them at a higher price at some future point pocketing the difference as a profit when you take a short position then you are assuming that the value of the shares is going to go down in the future so what you do is you borrow shares of the stock from uh typically from the clearinghouse and you sell them immediately and you've you you promise the well you promise the owner of the stock whose stock you've borrowed and sold that you're going to return those shares that you borrowed uh at some future time and hopefully they will the value of the shares will fall and the short seller can then buy the shares back at a cheaper price than they sold them for pocketing the difference now right. of course because they're they're engaging in a loan here they're also paying interest on the borrowed shares right. uh, and the interest that they owe fluctuates with the value of the shares right uh so What's happened here is that there have been so many borrowings and resellings of the stock here that basically the short positions, at least when this when the shares were shorted 140% of the float, that means that they've borrowed every share of stock available and then they reborrowed another 40% of them again. And all of these so you wait know. a minute. So there's a double borrow going on. It's like yeah, you well, borrowed it, but somebody else wants to get in on this as well. So they're going to borrow it again to create more. 
so I mean, there's there need be nothing sinister going on there. I mean, it's like if if A holds the shares of the stock and B is a short seller, you know, I can I can borrow the share from A and sell it to some guy C at market price now. But then I could, you know, then again, borrow the share from C who's now holding uh, it and sell it to D. Right. <laughs> and so that's, that's what's gone on here basically is you have lots and lots of borrowing the shares and selling them short. With this in mind, what is the essential thesis then of the GameStop trade? So again, as I, as I said, there's, there's two theses in play. One is that the stock has been massively overshorted and you got to remember when you are short selling the stock when you borrow that stock and sell it when there's more when you add selling pressure to the market and you had more people selling that drives the price of the stock down it's just simple supply and demand and so if you have all of these all of this short selling and the you know the the bigger that percentage of the float gets the more of an effect this has that all that short selling drives the value of the stock downward uh so these guys thought one this there's way too many shorts on this stock this is ludicrously overshorted they also thought that uh there these, was these are the guys on wall street bets the guys on wall street bets they also caught wind pretty early on of ryan cohen beginning to acquire shares in gamestop ryan cohen for those of you who aren't tracking this is a billionaire investor who formerly uh took chewy.com uh, an online retail uh, e-commerce business focusing on pet supplies and he turned that into a three and a half billion dollar business which he sold to PetSmart and is now a multi-billionaire well he hadn't really been doing anything with most of his capital until all of a sudden uh, in I believe early 2020 he started to purchase shares of GameStop more and more and more and uh I this think, caught... i think he purchased nine million shares of gamestop yeah. and at 76 million dollars which amounted to 10 percent of right. the company so he was then the largest retail shareholder of gamestop and these guys on wall street bets you know caught wind of this and they also noticed that ryan cohen had written letter to the board of directors at GameStop earlier this year saying, you know, your brand has real value here and there's real potential for you guys to, you know, have a successful future, but you need to radically overhaul your business model and you need to leave behind this brick and mortar cartridge reselling, you know, model that is the reason that everybody was shorting you in the first place. Yeah. And and reimagine your entire business as a digital first, you know, 21st century e-commerce uh, business uh, 
looking into you know partnering with esports and finding new ways to be part of this burgeoning video game industry deep fucking value uh he put his life savings i think is the that's the that's the folk tale right now is that he he fronted $53,000 his total life savings into this investment uh was that before or after Ryan Cohen got involved um i'm not sure but uh i want to th- say that i think it might have even been before right and let's i also think it's worth pointing out that deep fucking value for months took a lot of heat from other members of the wall street pets community right and he's you know he would regularly post updates on how his bet was going so far as he's just written this out for the last year and a half and he'll post his updates and people will just be like dude you're gonna get destroyed he's like well thanks you know that's not what i think but you know right we'll we'll see what happens (laughs) and right you know, uh, 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 other people started to on Wall Street Bets started paying attention to subreddit and digging around and finding out about Ryan Cohen writing this letter to the board and theorizing that Ryan Cohen was going to try to basically become the leadership of GameStop. That's what these guys thought was going to happen. And it kind of, you know, it kind of makes sense. He's a he's an e-commerce guy. So he's saying, hey, I want to convert GameStop into an e-commerce business. I want to pivot it into the 21st century. Uh, right. So video games are definitely not going anywhere. And I, I have the brand recognition here. So this is just to get kind of specifically back in. You said there are two theses here. Right. So the so first thesis the, the is first that thesis this is, is massively overshorted. And, and it's because this guy, Ryan, you know. And Ryan, Ryan Cohen's Cohen's coming in may be able to affect a you know a massive overhaul in the business model and you know this guy has a trained or or, or a proven track record of uh, delivering successful uh online retail businesses and and I would say also a traditionally brick and mortar style of business. I mean, if you think about your local pet store, I don't think a lot of people necessarily, you know, it's a brick and mortar kind of style business. It has been, I think. Yeah. So. Well, but and, and he's looking at like, look, we can disrupt that business by turning this all into online distribution and taking advantage of all this technology that we have now that a lot of these old retail models from the 20th century still, you know, haven't kind of caught up to. And by taking advantage of that stuff, there's real potential to turn that, that company's fortunes around. So that was kind of part one of the thesis. So that's part one thesis. And just GameStop could be, you know, a, a, a turnaround story here. And with the leadership of Ryan Cohen, they might not be a brick and mortar video game cartridge reseller doomed to failure. They certainly don't have all. to be. Yeah. Right. So, which would say if you don't have to be, but you're shorted at 140%, what were the hedge fund guys doing through this? Because they, uh, you can't tell me they don't know Ryan Cohen's not coming onto the board. Uh, These guys well, are professional. I mean, we don't yeah. know. But. I mean, again, 
I don't know what the hedge funds were thinking or why they did what they did. But if you ask me, it seems like they obviously didn't know about the impact of Ryan Cohen coming onto the board and what that could do to the sentiment on that particular stock. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had 140% of the float shorted. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, we it, don't know. It seems, yeah. I mean, my speculation is just that they saw a company, they go, this company sells used video game cartridges in brick and mortar stores, mostly in malls, <laughs> right? Video games are going away from cartridges altogether. And nowadays, People download their video games directly to their console or their computer, and you don't even have to go to a store to buy the game. So it seems like, on the face of it, GameStop is screwed. Like, this is like the easiest short in the universe, right? These guys don't even have to do any research. All they have to do is think about it for 30 seconds and decide, okay, I'm going to short GameStop, and I'm never even going to look at it again because it seems so obvious it's going to fail. And, that, and nobody else is going to be paying attention to this. Like, I think that's a factor here. It's sort of assuming that, like, oh, no one else will think, you know. No, it, well, it certainly seems like they assumed that nobody was going to pay attention to the fact that they had sold that stock short so heavily. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it most uh, – even – professional investors i mean i just saw an interview with kathy wood where she was like i didn't even know you could sell short a stock 140 percent of the float and so i think that's opening a lot of people's eyes yeah. on how underregulated short selling is and i do think that you know obviously i don't want to make short selling illegal and I don't think that's right. I mean, I do think short sellers have a market function to provide. They, you know, can help expose companies that are, you know, hiding things about their company that really mean that it is being overvalued and mm -hmm. they can expose weaknesses where there are weaknesses. And insofar as they do that, that's fine. But when you have companies and and hedge funds that short sell these companies so heavily that it is just artificially crushing them it limits their access to capital it makes it turns it into this self-fulfilling prophecy of uh that that destroys them and the worst part is if they sh like they know that if they have all these extra shares shorted right all these They've borrowed shares multiple times to sell short. If the company goes bankrupt and those shares go to zero, they never have to pay back the people that they borrowed those shares from. So they basically right. get like totally free profit on borrowing stuff that they never have to pay back. And never owned in the first place right Certainly. like but i get your point but yeah it's so so that those kind of practices in my opinion are you know it's long past time that we make some reforms here because that it should be legal 
for that many short positions to be open more than there are shares of the stock. Yes. Something, something ought to be done. So what's the second thesis? So the other thesis, the other kind of half of the thesis here, besides that GameStop might have a brighter future than most people would predict on the face of it is the idea that these short positions being stacked up so heavily makes them vulnerable for what's called a short squeeze in which uh, the all these short positions uh, get in trouble if people start buying the stock and driving the price up because as the price goes up the interest that the short positions have to pay to remain open in their position that is to say to avoid having to buy the shares back at the current market price to return them they got to keep paying interest and the higher those share prices go the higher the interest payments go so as the the value of the underlying stock rises that causes the interest payments that the short positions have to pay uh, for having borrowed the shares, those interest payments go up. Uh, and this is when you've seen in the news about the reports of Melvin Capital losing billions of dollars or whatever. That's what they're losing billions of dollars to is the interest payments they have to pay every day to remain open on their short positions. Now, you get a short squeeze when those interest payments get so high that the loaners of the share no longer are, you know, when the, the borrowers no longer have enough collateral to maintain having those shares on loan, and they basically get forced to buy them back at that point to return them. Uh, and that buying action drives the price of the stock up even further. And then as that goes further, other short positions also get margin called and also get forced to buy back the stock and you get this kind of cascading reverse avalanche where the price of the stock just goes up and up and up very very quickly as all of the short positions are forced to close their positions and buy the stock at whatever the market price is which just rises as you just have this flood of sellers entering the market and buyers are sitting there just waiting to absorb them and naming their price and getting it paid and the price of the stock briefly skyrockets uh but uh yeah that's what's called a short squeeze when you have this forced cascade of buying from people in short positions how would you describe the culture of Wall Street bets and how is that culture, let's say, or how has that community or whatever you would describe it, how has it evolved since you first started engaging with it a few months ago? So it's fascinated me from the moment that I discovered it. I mean, let's just say the language is colorful. Right. The, the memes are high quality. <laughs> and the the members of this community have 
an appetite for risk like the most degenerate Vegas gamblers that you've ever seen. I mean, these guys will throw down a million dollars on a single stock bet or more. I mean, like they're, you don't, I'm sure you can find a million YouTube five top YOLO bets on Wall Street bets of people just blowing jaw-dropping eye-popping fortunes on a single stock bet and losing it all or or tripling it up you know i mean just insane insane appetite for risk right. nothing that is anything like responsible investing and that's another misunderstanding of that subreddit is while you do see a lot of very interesting and well-researched uh you know due diligence posts in there with ideas about stocks you also have you know just some of the most like don't try this at home kind of moves right. that you could make on the stock market and it's like you know let these guys do it so you can watch and just be amazed yeah. <laughs> and uh and they'll they'll post their gains and losses either way uh, but this culture does have a uniquely high appetite for risk and for trying, trying crazy stuff. And I'll tell you anybody, if you told anybody that a group of disorganized Reddit internet investors from a message board are going to without any kind of top-down organization or planning take aim at a at a group of hedge funds and bleed them for tens of billions of dollars over the course of a couple of weeks like no you no one would ever have believed that <laughs> you know two months ago but these guys did it and i and i guess i was one of them because i i've had a position in gamestop open since december mid-December of last year and based entirely on the on the research I found in that subreddit I thought it was it, the research looked good to me and then I saw uh you know I just became more and more confident as I watched like the prognostications that these redditors had made come true one after another as though they had a crystal ball December 21st Ryan Cohen increases his stake by another 30%. Next thing you know, him and two of his former Chewy executives are named to the GameStop board of directors, which is shrinking from 14 to nine members. So he now controls basically a third of the board of directors. And a week later, the stock starts to jump. And then it jumps higher and higher and you see, you know, it doesn't take long before the word gets out. And, the, you know, you can't have a stock move as much as that stock did without people on Wall Street going, what the hell is going on with this GameStop stock? <laughs> and, you know, the from there, it's just been this snowball of retail attention. And, you know, it's just this perfect storm of a 
a catalyst that triggers this whole turnaround in the company and launches the stock off a plan by these guys to target these short positions on wall street and bleed them and then that just happens to be in today's political climate where you still have most of america who can very distinctly remember how you know wall street destroyed their financial futures and their savings and retirements back in 2008 in the housing crisis and they were bailed out and they never had to pay back a cent of those bailouts and there were no bailouts for the people you know on main street and you know i've also seen a lot of media reports describe this as some kind of you know crazy Dutch tulip mania situation Mm -hmm. saying that this is, you know, it's just a greater fool theory going on that everybody thinks they're going to be able to sell it at a higher price to some greater fool. Uh, Well, any reports that are saying that are one totally misunderstanding what a short squeeze is and what the, the Reddit horde (laughs) is trying to do. (laughs) Uh, and are some retail investors going to get wrecked getting involved in this, having no idea what they're doing and just hopping on what seems like a popular bandwagon? Yeah, well, but nobody should ever do that, and nobody's encouraged anybody to do that here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those it's, I feel sorry for people that do that, but, you know, that's too bad. But what you really do have here is a lot of people who are buying into this paying what they know to be exorbitant prices for GameStop stock based on the company's fundamental valuations, but they're doing it because they think that they can send a message that they can hurt wall street by doing it. Right. And whether that's true or not, the fact that that message has been able to galvanize so much retail investors under uncovers this undercurrent of anger from everyday Americans towards Wall Street. I mean, like you've seen in the memes across the internet for the last couple of weeks, you know, the, that nobody really is sad for the hedge funds here. Like, <laughs> nobody's sad for the rich guys on wall street that are losing a few bucks to retail for once but but this is this is no kidding a historic moment and a a big part of the reason that i remain deeply involved in this even you know knowing that i'm eating 90 percent losses on that gamestop positions i took that week Ooh, yeah that was a beating yeah that was a serious beating <laughs> but uh this is this is going to go down in history i mean this is kathy wood called this the the greatest intergenerational transfer of wealth in history uh yeah. from you know from the boomers to the millennials but yeah. let's not forget that really that's also probably the greatest transfer of wealth from the upper class and the wealthy of America to the middle and lower class. 
because I mean, what, what, if you look at a generational transfer of wealth from boomers to millennials, like the millennials have had, you know, shackles on economic shackles on for their entire lives and are the most kind of behind generation in terms of being able to get good earnings and good financial futures going, they've been handicapped from the start. And so this, this play has moved a lot of money into millennial hands. And those hands are largely not hands that had a lot of money before. I think many people see this GameStop phenomenon as, as a, as a revolution or at least as some kind of protest movement. And uh, I wanted to ask you how you think this situation compares to the Occupy Wall Street situation that happened roughly a decade ago. If you ask me, I think the most important thing to recognize here is that this is a very complicated situation. And there's a lot of people in it and a lot of people out of it for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. There are some people who are in this to stick it to the man. There are some people who are in this because they want a dream lottery ticket to get them out of, you know, their financial predicaments. There are other people who are in this that think that they can prey on other people that are taking certain positions in respect to this trade. You know, there's no shortage of different reasons that people are taking these actions. But I do think that there are there is a a much bigger than you might think, and probably bigger than in any other trade in history, any other stock trade. It's very unusual for politics to come into it in this way, where mm-hmm. people are literally treating their their market actions as a type of political action or political speech yeah uh, which is also interesting since it was you know probably big moneyed wall street interests that first lobbied for uh you know for the spending of money to be treated under american law as protected political speech and this is certainly the first time you've seen the, you know, that being turned in the other direction. Right. And I think you're referring to Citizens United. Right. Right. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of people that are treating this like a protest movement and comparing it to Occupy Wall Street. I think there's a lot of interesting parallels to be drawn there. I think that it's fascinating that, you know, this is, if you want to occupy Wall Street, you occupy them where it's really going on, which is inside the markets. Like, who gives a crap about actually standing around on the property outside their front doorstep? (laughs) Get get in their game, you know, hit hit them where they really are and where they really care about, which is in their balance sheet. Like... Mm -hmm. (laughs) So not only is it entertaining and like, man, the entertainment and narrative value of this whole event is just, there's, there's a reason that you've already had like six different movie deals struck over this thing and it's not even concluded yet. Right. And I I wanted to ask you 
Who do you think the key players are in this GameStop story so far? Whose story is this? You've got your key players have got to be deep fucking value. The, you know, the investor who made his YOLO bet on GameStop over a year ago and now is being hailed by the people of Wall Street bets is like, you know, the ultimate fortune teller, you know, the guy who could see the future. Right. And it's another point about that, that I want to bring up that it's easy to get confused about deep fucking value is not the leader of wall street bets. There is no leader of wall street bets. And he never was trying to be a leader. He was never trying to be a symbol or an icon, although he really has become iconic with respect to these events. Uh, he was just a guy who thought that betting on being long on GameStop was a great idea and that there was real potential for this company to pull off a turnaround. He and, was actually, until the 28th of January, he was a financial wellness education director at Mass Mutual. Yeah. Mass Mutual uh, in Boston. And yeah. he resigned on the 21st and was employed through the 28th. But anyway. Right. So, uh, but he's walked away from that now. And he has, you know, he's still riding most of his bet, at least the last that I saw him post, which was a a couple of days ago. Uh, He had averaged out a a little bit of profits on on the way up, I think, pocketing about $15 million that he's, you know, locked up, he can presumably retire on now. Uh, but the rest of that, which is the, the large majority of his position, is still uh, a live position on GameStop. So he's still in the game. He's still got skin in the game. As as far as I know, he still has almost all of his skin in the game. Uh, and I wouldn't expect that you're going to see him. I mean, I don't know what he's going to do, but it would surprise me a great deal if he exited his position before the congressional hearing, because that's going to, you know, open him up to accusations that he was manipulating the stock upwards only so he could get out before everybody else. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, that's very contrary to his investing style uh, at least according to his youtube channel he's a a long-term value investor and sees value in gamestop yeah uh so he's one of the main players deep fucking value is one of the main players i think ryan cohen is certainly one of the main players here because it's his actions coming in and driving from an from an investor standpoint uh driving the case that the company needs to completely reimagining itself and succeeding. And it's fascinating to think about Ryan Cohen being added to the GameStop board. And then it triggers this chain of events in which GameStop's stock values just go higher than anybody would have ever imagined except for the wall street bets guys <laughs> right who, who saw it in advance so 
I mean, if you're the the CEO of GameStop and you've just appointed this guy and his two homies to your board of directors, and all of a sudden your stock just goes through the roof, I mean, what do you got to be thinking of? Like, who is this guy? Like, <laughs> yeah. dude, you're magic. Like, <laughs> you're a please an god. Yeah, tell me what what are we doing? Show me the way. Like, ever, apparently everything you touch is gold. So tell me what we're doing. Right. <laughs> and I think there's probably a lot of that going on behind closed doors at GameStop leadership right now. Right. And I presume that Ryan Cohen, I, that you know, that's a pretty heavy burden to fall on your shoulders to have this huge thing happen where mm. you you really better deliver on this transition because you've got an army of retail investors the world over watching you and, you know, wanting you to give us some good results here so that we, you know, can be convinced that we were right in our case that you were going to turn this company around. Well, it's, it's on Ryan Cohen to pull that off now, but he's certainly a central player here. Obviously, you also have probably uh gabe plotkin and the you know the short sellers at melvin capital and and maybe some of their buddies at citadel who gave them a you know kicked them a couple of billion dollars to get out of the hole a couple of weeks ago bailed them out yeah uh and then finally probably uh vlad tenev is that his is it Vlad Tenev, yeah, he is the, yeah, the, uh, the founder of Robinhood. Yeah, founder and CEO of Robinhood. Uh, so I, I'd say those are your, those are your primary players uh, in this, and of course, you know the, the hordes of retail investors. Right. But I mean, and and probably. Uh, Janet Yellen, <laughs> also. Sure. Get, gets to be a major player <laughs> she hasn't made yet i guess she sort of has made her in entrance story. now yep. yes she's, she's made her entrance but yeah uh, she's come in in the second act and we will uh we will see right what role do you think uh lockdown you know pandemic lockdown boredom played in this because there's um, a narrative being pushed out there right now that it's a bunch of guys on wall street bets who are at home or out of work they've got stimulus checks in their pockets they've got this new uh very entertaining very addictive robin hood app uh, at their fingertips that has given them kind of a new level of accessibility to the market um, i don't think that's what's going on with gamestop i do think that there's a lot of that going on in the market today and that robin hood has opened up a lot of retail traders just kind of using their money to you know have fun on the market mm -hmm. <laughs> uh but i don't think that's what's going on with gamestop i think what you have here is some guys who did some really good serious research and um you know made it publicly available in these forums where other lots of other people recognized this is really good research. This is a much more sophisticated look under the hood at what's going on with GameStop than your classic, you know, 30 second 
short seller spiel about you know GameStop's right. a failing business in malls like that you would see on CNBC or, right you know uh, and these guys were paying very close attention their research was excellent and this is a point that's been made by a lot of people who have come to the defense of uh, the investors from Wall Street bets guys like uh, Jamath uh, and oh, I forgot his name yeah and Mark Cuban uh, these guys have come out and said uh, you know Wall Street seriously underestimated the quality of research that some of these retail guys can do and they they've been underestimating these guys forever but you know with in the information age these guys have access to sophisticated tools that regular guys never had access to before and guess what they're using them and guess what like you know they're they can be a serious force to be reckoned with that can there's a lot of smart people out there on the internet and right. the the good stuff that's the, the thing with reddit when you have something that's controlled entirely by people either upvoting it or downvoting it like the good stuff really can rise to the top <laughs> and right. uh yeah so i th i think that's a, a very interesting facet of this many critics are saying that this situation like you see a lot of people on television saying that this situation proves how disconnected the stock market is from any real world value. Uh, the media has characterized the GameStop trade as nothing more than like social media fueled hype or a, or a pump and dump or even a Ponzi scheme at time. I've heard it called that. I mean, over the last couple of weeks, I've heard multiple analysts describe GameStop trade as lacking any, any investment fundamentals. And, you know, there's the famous now famous quote from the, famous short seller uh michael burry the guy that made millions if not maybe even billions um shorting the mortgage lending crisis uh he's described the situation as unnatural insane and dangerous but i wanted to ask you as a, as a current gamestop investor do you think there actually were fundamentals present here well i think you have this first of all the fundamentals case for GameStop is, you know, that first part of the thesis is that the the overshorting here and the lack of attention paid to the potential of this company to reinvent itself means that its fundamental value is really a lot higher than where it was mm -hmm. in the market. Now, and here's the thing is The other, the other part of this is the value of the stock. If, if we're talking about a free market here, the value of the stock just is whatever people are willing to pay for the stock. And people might have different ways that they come to their valuations of that stock. You know, traditional models look at things like, the price of the stock compared to their earnings per share of the company or the price of the stock compared to their sales numbers. There's all kinds of different models that you can use to value a company's stock. Uh, but no one is forced to use 
those models. And just because you think that those models are good models doesn't mean that somebody else has to use those models for their own personal valuations and for their own decisions about whether or not they want to own the company's stock. So if, you know, if people like the stock and they want to buy it at that price, well, then so be it. That's mm -hmm. their choice. And those decisions play into the market price just as much as everybody else's decisions do with with those people's valuations of the stock and whether they're willing to buy or sell it at a particular price. Now, the federal government and the SEC don't take a very, uh, they probably take a different view on this than I do. They want you to only be buying and selling stock with respect to its value, whether or not that reflects the underlying value of the company from a perspective of whether that company will make money in the future and succeed as a business. But realistically, the SEC knows, as everyone does, that people that are buying and taking positions in stocks in the stock market are doing more than just that. They're also taking opportunities where they see that holding a stock can be strategic for one reason or another. Like, for example, that you notice that the stock has been allowed to be shorted to 140% of the float. And guess what? That makes me value holding that stock. If I think that's going to get short squeezed, then right. I think I'm going to be able to sell this stock at a name my price situation in the future. And I believe that that thesis is correct then why shouldn't I be able to buy that stock at whatever price I want to buy it at? As long as there's a seller willing to make that same deal with me. Uh, so if the SEC is going to say that, that that sort of thing shouldn't be done, well, it's like this gets done by every everybody on Wall Street every day. And mm -hmm. to pretend otherwise is totally naive and ridiculous. Right. And to use the the idea that, that that's not how people should be buying or selling stocks. Those aren't good reasons for them to be doing it. Uh, well, one, you're, unless you're going to be applying that same kind of, you know, enforcement of reasons on everyone equally, including the big players on Wall Street, which they're not going to be prepared to do, then, you know, let's have the same rules for everybody and right. I, which i think is going to be a, another big theme of how this all plays out is this is really shown how the rules are not the same for retail investors as they are for the big guys on wall street right and this the second the guys on wall street are losing money to the retail guys it, they pull out all the stops to do everything they can to change the rules on the fly and yeah. increase margin requirements, anything they can do to, to get out of their bad position that they would never let a retail investor get out of if the shoe was on the other foot. I think that the, the GameStop situation uh, is completely, obviously unprecedented and it certainly caught these hedge fund it's completely unprepared. Uh, you know, Melvin Capital lost 50% of its value. But uh, 
one can imagine that the gay plotniks of the world are going to do anything and everything they could they can to prevent this from ever happening again you know yet at the same time many people are talking about how the world of investing now will never be the same because communities of people on reddit discord and other platforms now have a much larger influence in the market we can see that what do you th what do you think the role social media is going to play kind of moving forward well there have been a lot of newcomers to Wall Street bets over the past couple of weeks with the, you know, huge media spotlight from all over the globe. And a lot of these people are looking for the next GameStop or like, what's the next, mm -hmm. what's the next thing you're going to short squeeze? And you've also had, you know, you've seen a, a bunch of other stocks alongside GameStop pushed as targets of the Reddit retail investors like amc and nokia and blackberry and all this stuff and mm -hmm. mostly i think all of those are being you know that that's a distraction gamestop is is in a unique position here and it's the only one that i feel certain has made the people on the on the shorting side of this really bleed financially speaking um and i don't think it's over so there's not going to be a next game stop this is going to be a unique scenario and furthermore wall street bets and any reddit investing community you're never going to see this happen again because Wall Street is going to have their their eye on every one of those subreddits forever. For never again will they be caught with their pants down like this. None of them will. Every hedge fund on Wall Street is going to have interns combing the threads of Reddit, Wall Street bets, stocks, investing, every other investing related subreddit in that community is going to be watched for years to come if not forever because that let's face it for those for those guys that got hit by this so far and it's not over yet if you ask me but just as things have gone so far that was an expensive boo-boo that those guys made by leaving themselves open to this kind of a, a retail onslaught of Redditors who realized that these guys were vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And they're never going to allow a, a, a blind spot like that to exist again if they can help it. And that means that... You're, they're never going to be caught with their pants down by Reddit again. Maybe something in some other future social media platform that they don't really know about might be able to get them in a future position like this, but it won't be from Reddit. So what makes Reddit or communities like that, other social media channels, what makes them then so dangerous? Because they allow, they allow sort of organic communities to be built communities in this case around investing ideas and they allow users without you know being organized by some kind of leadership 
to naturally coalesce around certain strategies based on information that's you know becomes publicly information or publicly available to them uh and you know you get big enough communities and you know wall street bets has ballooned in size over the past couple of weeks but even before all of this happened it was still like between one and two million members i think mm-hmm. uh and you know, you get people together in the millions and have them all put, you know, throw, kick a few bucks in, like, turns out it really can make a difference. Right. But it, but it's also worth mentioning and worth remembering if you're the retail investor that even something like Wall Street Bets, like, we're still the little guy. We're the little mouse stealing the crumbs from under the table of these mm-hmm. big boys playing you know the fat cats playing at their table and now the fat cats have seen us (laughs) right which you know in one sense it's almost kind of you know a real downside for wall street bets all this extra attention is because it's going to be a lot harder to make successful market plays when you've got the eyes of every fucking wall street firm pardon my french uh when you've got the eyes of every wall street firm looking at every move you're planning and every idea that you post you you know you lose your edge once they notice you (laughs) right uh but i do think you're not gonna see an end to these kind of communities springing up and you know flexing their muscles so to speak in in the market and it's been very instructive i think for all parties involved uh what the true power of decentralized communities can can bring uh, in in the future and what technologies like social media how those really can have enormous impacts on things like markets a big player in this is we said earlier is robin hood and you know robin hood's stated mission is to quote democratize finance for all i think the company has succeeded in creating more accessibility uh to the market for the average retail investor and and yet many uh users of the app felt completely betrayed uh by robin hood for restricting trades of GameStop, even going so far as to shut down the ability to buy GameStop stocks on January 28th. You could sell, but you couldn't buy. And when they did open it back up the next day under, I think, I believe it was SEC scrutiny or congressional scrutiny, uh, they limited the amount of shares a retail investor could buy uh, at that time. Um, I wanted to ask you how you think... um, Robin Hood could have handled that situation differently. Well, I I do think it's correct to, you know, you do have to give Robin Hood credit where credit's due. And as far as making, giving the average retail investor or even, you know, prospective retail investor unprecedented access to markets by just being able to trade stocks through an app on your phone and do it commission free 
that these guys really did a, a huge service to retail investors. Um, and they changed the game. I mean, there wouldn't be commission-free trading for retail investors if it weren't for Robinhood. Now, every brokerage offers it because they had to to compete with Robinhood taking all their business. And so now, thanks to Robinhood, it's industry standard that we have commission-free trading, which is a great thing for retail because it means that you, you know, you're not priced out of getting involved because of high trading fees. So good on them for that. And, you know, whether or not, you know, how serious they are about their mission for opening things up for retail investors, I'm not going to speculate on that, but I will say that their decision to limit the buying of shares on the retail side of GameStop in particular was a disastrous idea from a PR perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, and if your name is Robin Hood, <laughs> if the name of your app is Robin Hood, that you're going to like allow the little guy to steal from the rich guy and, and get what's rightfully his or, you know, whatever the sort of Robin Hood myth that's supposed to be behind this is. And these guys then when it's, clear that it's gone viral and all these retail investors are piling into GameStop to force a short squeeze and it looks like they're just about on the verge of triggering it and all of a sudden Robinhood comes out and says well we had to halt the trading on that stock and by halt the trading I mean you guys can still sell but you can't buy we had to only stop buy trading of this well like look every transaction has a buyer and a seller so if i'm still allowed to sell that means somebody somewhere is still being allowed to buy (laughs) but it's not me so yeah whatever your agreement was to get out of the massive capital requirements you were going to have to take on when you make a move like this that makes it look like you are stopping the retail investors from buying, just buying a stock that they want to buy at market price because it's going to hurt other Wall Street firms, in particular, a Wall Street firm that recently bailed out the most, you know, prominent short sellers of the stock so you're talking about citadel i'm talking about citadel bankrolling melvin capital them being the most prominent short sellers of the stock citadel is also respond they're robin hood's biggest customer in that like i believe something like 40 percent of their income comes from what citadel pays them for their order flow for the order flow that's correct. Which and there's nothing necessarily super nefarious about that. Like, I something that we maybe want to look into, but you know, somebody has to place these orders into the market, and they're going to get their eyes on them first when that happens. But when most retailers don't know about that, and then it looks like 
you're shutting down the buying to save your biggest customer who <laughs> pays you more than anybody else. And what do they pay you for? They pay you to get the information of the retail sellers and buyers placing their orders on the market so that they can have a kind of informational advantage and an upper hand in the market. And that you're, and that these guys are now caught with their pants down and you're doing this to save their butt when it's being held to the flames at the expense of treating your retail investor fairly, whether or not that's true to allow a narrative like that to so obviously develop. I mean, and it's, it's such an obvious conclusion to draw from those events that, you know, it's no wonder that the retail users of Robinhood are running for the hills now, like Fidelity's new accounts over the last weekend was up like 700%. Really? From, yeah. For new account signups from all these people running from Robinhood to go to a broker that they can be confident is not going to limit their ability to buy shares of the stock that they want to buy. Mm -hmm. And Robinhood forgot that their number one rule is you're dealing with people's money and their people are entrusting you with their money and if they don't trust that you're not going to change the rules of the game in the middle of the game right. then people are right to be to have zero confidence that their money is safe with you i'm i'm transferring all i had a robin hood account too and guess what i'm moving to a different broker now right. uh and that's for that same reason that I'm not convinced that Robin Hood is not going to try to pull strings and, and, you know, bend or break rules when it comes to my money because they don't have enough cash flow on their balance sheet. So, right. And that's yeah. sort of like the, I would say, the most kind of best the irony scenario is explanation is <laughs> yeah it's really palpable but i as you mentioned to me earlier in our our pre-show talk that these guys are basically not robin hood but the sheriff of nottingham they are they're the sheriff of nottingham it's you know it's but it's it's a tragic story in a way i mean if we want to look at it as, as a myth it's a tragic story because like i feel like they could have had one of these transcendent moments and you know Tenev is saying he had a gun to his head and you know that could be true and I don't want to like but what if in that moment he said no like I'm not shutting down buying that's I'm not shutting down buying I'm not doing this because Which... if I do this it's gonna destroy my well, business exactly that's what he should have said he should but... have recognized that yeah, and I think that he had a moment. Also, it's this fascinating moment. It's a fascinating moment because it's the moment where like, holy cow, man, your business just started. Is is really a major player in a in an almost revolutionary moment uh, that is directly tied into your core value as a company, like the core, the stated mission of the company. It's working. 
It's working. Yeah. This is succeeding. What you said you wanted to do, you're doing it. It's happening, and it's happening on a scale. You know, I think maybe the problem here was that it happened so quickly and on a scale that he was not prepared for. And instead of like, it's a classic story. It's like instead of standing, a classic tragedy, instead of standing and sort of, it, maybe it was a moment where he was called upon to kind of take a heroic stance and that would have like made his business legendary moving into the future. He caved. Um, and, and again, I don't want to sit here and rip on Vlad Tenev. Like he talks about, he keeps saying, I've heard him say in multiple interviews, they called me at three o'clock in the morning and said, I owed $3 billion. You know, it's like nobody wants to get a phone call with that. And, and I, I, I do appreciate that. He says that he was, you know, awoken in the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning. I think he's signaling like, guys, I wasn't thinking like clearly, like he was overwhelmed. I think, they had me by the yeah, but it's like it's almost like watching somebody get everything they wanted and then just being terrified by it and scared and, and throwing it away. Well, I don't doubt that he had a lot of pressure on him to stop the bike. And uh, may, could he have stopped the buying? Maybe. Could he have done something else? Maybe. It's tough to say. But what I do know is that what he did do will probably, you know, in my estimation, I do not have high hopes for the success of Robinhood as a brokerage platform going forward. Mm -hmm. And this is a little bit, unfortunately, time for them, given that they have a upcoming IPO, I think, in the next year. Uh I don't think you're going to find that there's going to be a lot of retail investors with a positive view of your company going toward your IPO, Robinhood. But, you know, hey, live and learn, right? Right. <laughs> there was a point that we didn't really get to when I was talking about the culture of Wall Street bets that I wanted to make sure I mentioned which is that you have these guys, you have these Wall Street bets guys with this insane risk tolerance. And if you're thinking about trying to execute a short squeeze play like this, it's very difficult to do if you're not like a single organized unit, mm -hmm. right? Or like a big hedge fund or a you know, a big single actor, or at least a, a big team of investors trying to short squeeze a very, very small company's shorted stock. Uh, even GameStop, which wasn't trading at that expensive, is still big enough that, like, for retail to try to do this, just kind of coalescing around a few ideas posted on a public message board is... I mean, it's it's a it's a big ask because what you're talking about is a global multi-million player version of the prisoner's dilemma. Mm -hmm. the, pr the prisoner's dilemma, for those who may not have heard of it, is a description of a game situation where you know two. You it's typically described with two different players. 
each player can either defect or cooperate. And the payout structure of the game is set up such that, you know, both players do better for themselves if they defect, whether the other player defects or cooperate either way you do better for yourself by defecting and so typically both players defect and they end up with an outcome that is much much worse for both of them than if they had both cooperated right but because of the structure of the the payoffs of the outcomes their you know their rational decision making forces them into uh the the double defects outcome square and everybody loses but so to be able to play this game you need these guys who you know need to come together to be able to risk all this capital that they're putting with their infinite risk appetite. But the play also has to be very, very simple so that like you don't have to be some kind of super genius to execute this, that even your, your grandma could do this if she gets the instructions. And fortunately for the short squeeze, the best way to make it happen is just to get people to buy and hold it. And the, this culture is so perfect for it because you have these guys that are so used to completely irrational, irresponsibly irrational behavior, like, you know, yoloing a, a million dollars of their savings into a single stock bet or something like that. Like, these are the guys you need if you're going to play a giant prisoner's dilemma game. You need to be able to count on the fact that they can commit to acting irrationally and really follow through on those commitments. And it's kind of a strategic, it's a genius strategic point about this that, and the other thing is, you're going to have to completely expect that Wall Street's going to come back at you with every trick in the book to try to trick you into selling your, your shares and to make you sell them off so that they can get off the hook cheaper. And so if you're going to commit to this play, you really need to turn your brain off like you're a total retard, pardon the, pardon the language, <laughs> but in the, the parlance of Wall Street bets, you know, that's an advantage for you. If you're going into this kind of a fight, you need to just be able to completely ignore all of these reasons that you need to sell and hold it because that's what will punish the short sellers and hopefully eventually make them lose so much money paying interest in their short positions that eventually they're forced to capitulate and the stock gets squeezed. And then all the people holding it will get to sell off to people closing their short positions. The short positions are the bag holders. The everyday retail investors get to make walk away with huge profits. And it's a beautiful 
Cinderella story for GameStop and retail investors everywhere. That's the outcome that I think we'd all like to see. I think that's the outcome Hollywood would like to see for the ending <laughs> to all the movies that they've just been yeah. contracting for. Uh, but, you know, wh who knows how it will play out at the end. What do you think the GameStop trade has taught us about risk? What has it taught you about risk? Well, I think it serves as a really nice example of the fact that all the time we we shoulder risk of possible outcomes that the the chance that that outcome actually obtains is very 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 small like only a tiny fraction of one percent uh but if that outcome does obtain it carries with it catastrophic consequences that you absolutely do not want to shoulder under any circumstances uh there are a lot of problems that you can describe this way uh, a lot of them will be you know familiar from you know recent news cycles you could talk about pandemics as this kind of a risk right like the chance that any that a pandemic is going to suddenly come out of nowhere and ravage the globe at any given moment is very small that it's going to happen right now but on a long enough time scale it eventually these very small risks do come to pass eventually and when they do, they carry the consequences with them that, you know, we can expect that they were going to carry all along. And if we're not prepared for them, it can be utterly devastating. Uh, there were a lot of people raising alarms about global pandemics long before coronavirus came around, going back as, to George W. Bush's administration. And he actually took that really seriously and took a lot of steps to create some preparedness for that, which was further, uh, you know, further bolstered by the Obama administration. But when Donald Trump came into the White House, they they pulled all those protections out and, and cut positions and said, we'll hire these guys back again if we need them at the time. And you've, we've all seen the consequences of, of the unprepared situation that the United States was in when the coronavirus pandemic hit. But there's lots of other problems too. Climate change can be uh, thought about this way, that there's you know massive risks of, of big climate events that you know we, are shouldering all the time that we don't pay much attention to, but they can devastate us. Also, I think one that doesn't get our attention very often or very much, but should get a lot more of our attention is artificial intelligence research. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that the project to move towards creating an artificial general intelligence, that is to say an artificial intelligence that's capable of having all of the, you know, that can do everything that human beings can do with our rich mental lives. Once we make an artificial intelligence of that level, well, uh, 
it has a, a very extreme possibility to rapidly advance and snowball very fast into something that's very quickly beyond our ability to control or even understand. And we probably only get one shot at that. And if we do it wrong, it could have catastrophic consequences for each and every human being alive on earth. And I don't want to sound alarmist, but when I say catastrophic consequences, I mean up to and including fatal for everyone. Right. And, and we're starting to see these risks being taken more seriously. You have guys like Nick Bostrom at the Future of Life Institute at Oxford University. If you don't know who Nick Bostrom is, go look into this guy and check out the papers that he writes. In fact, a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain that a lot of the things that Elon Musk is concerned about and the problems he's trying to address that he has drawn a lot of inspiration from Nick Bostrom's work. You also have in the, the budget that was recently passed in the defense spending uh, just this last December, there was a, a big section of that that was put towards uh, developing AI safety regulations and projects in the defense budget, which is a, is a promising sign since I think that, you know, these are really national and global security issues. Uh, and the, the lesson from GameStop that I would like people to take home from is these guys on Wall Street got caught with their pants down taking an enormous amount of risk. They put themselves in a position where they might and might still yet be forced to pay whatever the market demands in price for the shares that they borrowed. And there's no upper limit cap on that, theoretically speaking. It, you know, it, if it gets high enough, it could destroy the entire economy. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that will happen probably. I think somebody will step in to prevent that from happening in some way. But the point is these guys open themselves up to catastrophic risk even if it was at a very small probability of obtaining but if you do that you're playing with fire and you're going to get burned and we need to understand that especially as we move forward into the future with more and more powerful technologies that can have serious consequences that may be undoable that we need to proceed very carefully and we need to make sure that to whatever extent we can we are doing things in ways that don't open us up to catastrophic risks mm -hmm. uh to infinite loss to infinite loss kinds of situations absolutely which technically kind of to piggyback on what you just said and or to clarify this situation is a potential infinite loss situation because in a short situation when the value, there is no limit to what a value. Right. I mean, the, how high a value can go. Yeah. I mean, would, it's whatever, whatever the order book says, if a short squeeze gets squeezed, then, you know, the, 
they immediately have to start buying up the shares at whatever they're on offer at market. And once those shares get enough, if this squeeze is really squeezing hard, you get a lot of buyers just piling into the market, eating up whatever the listed prices in the order book are. And, you know, it's one thing for that to happen and just eat up all the prices in the order book. It's another thing when people are expecting this to happen and know that you're going to pay them whatever they ask for, especially when there's so many shorts that literally they're going to have to buy every share that's out there and then some more if the short percentage really is that high. And again, we don't have exact data on where that short percentage is right now. We'll know more on Tuesday about how things were back on the 29th. Mm. Uh, but, you know, real-time data on that is virtually impossible to get your hands on. There's estimates, but nothing that's the cold, hard numbers. Mm. Um, but when people know that their orders or expect that their orders are going to be filled at whatever price they set, I mean, then you have a real dangerous possibility of people setting economy breaking prices and like weird things could happen. Like GameStop becomes the world's first quadrillion dollar company by market cap for a few minutes or something like that. Just weird stuff that you don't want to be happening in normal markets. And hopefully this whole situation will inspire regulators to reform not and I'm I think that there's a lot of danger about regulators wanting to come in and babysit retail investors and put restrictions on what they can do in the markets. No, that would be deeply wrong. What needs to be fixed in the markets is not what retail investors are able to do or not, but what whether or not people should be able to short sell stocks at those levels, levels which can rightly believe lead people to believe that they can name any price they want and have it met by a short seller getting squeezed focus the reforms there let's let's reform the short selling rules to something a little more reasonable and something that puts a cap on the obvious greed of exploitative short sellers that just want to like drive companies values into bankruptcy and profit the whole way down as they destroy that company like that's that needs to be curtailed in my in the in the humble opinion of this one retail investor i feel like 2020 in particular uh really kind of with the pandemic kind of marked the final sort of death let's say of the 20th century and this is one of those historical moments that I think is just so unmistakably 21st century. I mean, there's the age-old human traits here of greed and, and you know, risk and um, revolution and yeah. you know, those kinds. Of the, do you have the, the class warfare aspect to this that's going on? Um, 
but it's sort of the platforms where these age-old battles, the platform where these age-old battles are being fought has, has changed now, and, we're, and it, it will never be the same anymore. There truly are a lot of really fascinating angles on this. Uh, it's so multifaceted, and there's so many cool things to talk about. And I guess, you know, time will tell as to what kind of a impact this ultimately has historically. But, uh, you know, and it's always kind of hard to judge those things while they're still happening. But to me, it, it feels like this really might be a watershed moment. And like, there's so much about this that's truly unique and truly groundbreaking for retail investors to profit at the expense of professional wall street investing firms is at this scale it's it's completely unheard of and it's probably the you know kathy wood called it the biggest intergenerational transfer of wealth in history i think it's probably also the biggest transfer of wealth in you know in social strata from the from the wealthy down to the poor and middle classes probably the greatest one of those in american history too and if that turns out to be the case then even if the you know the squeeze never gets squoze for those of us who who contend that they don't believe that there really has been a true short squeeze here even if that never comes to pass this still will have made such a mark and an impact in the the future of the american economy uh that i really think this is you're looking at a real historical event here that's that's gonna it's gonna be a big one that we're gonna see feel and talk about and write about and study the impacts of for for many 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 years to come well justin thank you so much uh, pleasure's all mine i think i'd like to actually have a follow-up with you uh episode maybe after the congressional hearings on the 18th and we can kind of look at what happens uh at that point um Mike, as you know, we've had a, a lot of really interesting conversations over the years, and I am more than happy to have one with you at any future point which you would like. All right. Well, Justin, again, thank you so much uh, for coming on this evening. Um, everyone, you've been listening to Interview Time.